Welcome into the show. It is Daniel Wortman coming to you live from the Dreamaginate Sports Studios. Thanks for tuning in this Friday, June the 14th. It is 9 a.m. on the East Coast. This is your 6 a.m. West Coast wake-up call and all time zones in between and around the world. We've got a packed show today. A um, lot going on. News broke yesterday that we're going to get to um, coming up in about 45, 50 minutes with Mickey Turner, who is dropping by to have a quick chat on the news concerning uh, crossfire solidarity payments. It's a whole new world in American soccer, and uh, and that is good on, on this part. Um, we have a lot of other things to fix, but this... This ruling that came out from FIFA in regards to the Crossfire Premier case um, is is something that we're going to, to to dive into in detail. But one thing I want to point out uh, is that U.S. soccer and Major League Soccer. There's something you need to understand about both of these organizations. They do what they want to do unless they feel they have to do something different. In other words, they're not necessarily trying to do the right thing. In the case of Major League Soccer recently announcing that they were going to start honoring solidarity payments, they put that out because they already knew this was coming. They already knew this was over the horizon. They they had gotten word that this was coming down so they took preemptive action from from a public relations standpoint to do this in, in saying that they're going to honor solidarity payments going forward. That's why that was done. Everyone was lauding them for finally being FIFA compliant. They were being FIFA compliant because they, they already knew they had to be. They knew that they were already going to be called out on this with the Crossfire case, and so they tried to get out ahead of it. It was the smart PR play to do that. But don't don't mistake that action as as Don Garber, Major League Soccer and the in, in the US Soccer Federation all of a sudden waking up going, Man, we are ready to be FIFA compliant in always, always, uh, in everything. That is not the case. They are only doing what they feel like they're forced to do. This is why the legal cases are so important because even if the, it, it, some of these cases lose on on what they are out to get right in terms of the outcome they were hoping for u.s soccer is being forced to defend actions that are indefensible in many cases and we're we're going to see this play out with hope solo's case we're going to see this play out with the u.s women's national team case we're going to see this play out in 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 the other cases as well where u.s soccer has been on the wrong side of history time and time again. And and although Crossfire didn't get the verdict they were hoping for in that original ruling when they got the explanation and they and they saw what FIFA stated, it it means a whole new world for American clubs. And we're gonna get into that with Mickey Turner here in just a little bit. Uh, before that, right after um, the break, we are going to have on Nicole Rodriguez. She is a member of the Puerto Rican women's national team, and we are looking forward to chatting with her as we wrap up our all-ladies lineup for the first week, the opening 
full week of the Women's World Cup in France, and we have been really, really excited about this week and having these ladies on to talk about uh, their experiences and not just the women's game, but just their experiences in the game and how they see the game and and how they view growing the game, uh, developing the game, etc. It's been it's been a great series of conversations um, all week. So um, we we really enjoyed having uh, all of them on and look forward to having Nicole on here and just a few minutes so the look the this this thing with with crossfire we're going to get into this again with mickey turner he was not originally on the lineup but i reached out to to mickey yesterday and said hey can you come on the show today um this this story is worth a a quick conversation on and so he he's graciously uh, decided been able to work a schedule out and come on the show at around 9:50 Eastern today and uh, right after uh, we we finish up with Nicole and so we we are excited about having uh, having that conversation a little bit later on so th- look the women's World Cup keeps keeps on keeping on um, Australia yesterday had a had a dramatic comeback after being down two nil to Brazil comes back and wins 3-2. I mean, every day this tournament is is getting better and better and um, no telling where it's going to go. But, uh, you know, only time time will tell. But uh, we are, um, you know, we we are following, you know, all this action for the the next few weeks. And it it just highlights the fact that the, the importance placed on the the women's world cup is improving but it needs to still get better there still needs to be more and the more that these european clubs start placing a priority on the women's game the more we are in trouble in the u.s when we have a pro league with only nine teams and uh, there's a there's a way to make it mo- way more than nine teams uh and make it successful um and, and that way forward is the same way forward we need on the men's side. And that means open up the system and let anyone who who wants to try, try to be a, a professional team and build the biggest club they can build anywhere they want to build it in the U.S. and, and see where it goes. And uh, the, the women will be better for it. They'll certainly get paid better for it because uh, they won't be locked into – stupid minimum salaries of $10,000 a year, which is laughable. It's, it's quite frankly disgusting that our federation has sanctioned that kind of uh, payments um, at, at a professional level. And the way that they are limiting the women's game is, is ridiculous and, uh, and, and needs, to, needs to get better, needs to be improved dramatically um, going forward so the sponsor uh this half hour is dutkick brand d-u-t-k-i-g brand.com again that is d-u-t-k-i-g brand.com they are the makers of really really cool soccer products these football products are um journals they are t-shirts i mean there's planners waterproof planners i mean incredible stuff Check them out. Use the promo code DWSHOW. Again, that is DWSHOW, and you will get 10% off your order and support the show at the same time. We will be right back after this break with Nicole Rodriguez. 
Welcome back into the show. Thanks for tuning in this Friday morning. Uh, we are really, really excited to have on this morning Nicole Rodriguez, the longest standing player for the Puerto Rican national team. Nicole, welcome to the show this morning. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. Um, so the world the World Cup is underway and um, been been some exciting matches. Um, seen some high quality play, some close results, etc. Um, you know when you suit up for the Puerto Rican national team, is that a dream for all of of, of you know obviously yourself, but your teammates is is to one day be playing in a World Cup on that kind of stage. I mean, I think that's every player's dream, you know, like that's something that um, I've looked at, for example, like just the U.S. women's national team since I was really little and watched them play and gone to games. And every time you kind of think of the World Cup, that's kind of the pinnacle in the soccer world. And so um, all of us have that dream and we're hoping maybe in four years that that we'll be able to get there. So your background, give us a, where did you grow up and, and kind of where did this love affair with the game of, of soccer begin for you? So I grew up in Connecticut. Um, my parents are from Puerto Rico and they moved um, after they were married for my dad's job um, and somehow randomly ended up in Connecticut. Um, and for me, I have an older brother um, who's four and a half years older than me. And when I was little, I kind of just did whatever he did. So um, any sport he picked up, I picked it up too. Um, but with soccer, it was kind of different. So I started when I, I started going to games when I was like zero years old, you know, but when I was four, I got to start playing and kind of from there, um, it was just anytime I was on the field, my parents will tell me um, that it was just like, I was like a different person. Like I was so aggressive and I just like always loved the game and would just like go outside and go downstairs and, and just like kick the ball around. And, and I just, I just loved it. And it kind of, kind of grew from there. I played tons of sports, but um, it was always kind of the one that um, even when things didn't work out and even when I may not have been the best best player all the time I worked really hard at it because I loved it and and it paid off so growing up in Connecticut what was access like for you as a player in terms of leagues teams maybe travel club soccer etc what what was that access and opportunity like for you as a girl growing up in Connecticut so it was actually I think Connecticut has a, a pretty good system um which I was lucky to have. I, I pretty much played rec um, all the way through sixth grade, actually. Um, travel was was available, um, but my parents, not being from Connecticut or the States, um, they, they didn't really know very much about, um, like, any of this system, if that makes sense. So um, I didn't know that club was a thing. Um, until my travel coach in eighth grade was like, you need to go try out for club. And we were like, what's club? Um, so I think like it, it was always available. Um, we just didn't really know about it. So I played, I played, uh, like rec until sixth grade and then played travel seventh and eighth. And then, um, like found soccer plus, um, in Farmington, Connecticut, where Tony DeChico was like the head of, um, of the club and was the coach actually for my age group. And so, um, got on that team my freshman year and then 
just kind of went from there, ended up playing for Oakwood Soccer Club, which is a huge club in Connecticut. I think probably the oldest one. Um, And so at that point, like ECNL was, I think it was like my junior or senior year started like having teams in Connecticut. Um, But mostly it was just like normal club um, level (laughs) soccer. Um, And now, I mean, everyone's got ECNL teams all over Connecticut, um, but that wasn't as big. It was ODP was a big thing. Um, And and that was pretty much, pretty much it. So I I guess uh, being naive, uh, your your parents just not knowing what was around or what was available, obviously um, had, had you down a pathway of you know we're we're calling it rec soccer or local soccer uh community soccer there there's all kinds of labels we can put on it uh versus you know the pay to play club type experience that most kids um are are able to get into as an alternative to that uh type of soccer what did you see in in your transition from a local, um, you know, city-based type league into club soccer. As a player, what did you experience as a difference? Was it a higher level? Was it was it different? Was it just uh, more travel? Like, wh- what did you notice in that transition um, of moving into that club space versus what, you know, you experienced in the rec space? So I think the biggest difference that I noticed Um, well, one of the biggest differences was just, yeah, like the level was higher for sure. Um, but I think also the coaching was just like a little bit more, you know, like, um, we had coaches who were experienced and who had like gone through educational courses to really, um, like refine their, their, um, like trade. And so I was able to learn a lot. One of our coaches, um, she came on my sophomore year when I moved to Oakwood soccer club, she had played for Arsenal. Um, and so she just came with like loads of experience and, um, and things that we had would never really been exposed to, um, just knowledge and, and just like awareness in the game, all that type of stuff. Um, but I think like one of the negative things that I noticed, um, is that a lot of players, uh, didn't necessarily love it anymore. Um, I think a lot of girls on my team when I joined had been playing like competitive club soccer since they were nine. Um, and a lot of them were just kind of burnt out. Um, and that's kind of something I, I even noticed in college, like people were really like, Oh, I can't wait to be done. Like I just soccer is taking over my life and I just need to be done. And I, part of me thinks like, if, if I would have gone competitive and been in that club environment sooner, yes, maybe my skills might be, have been a little more refined and all these things, but maybe I would have burned out of soccer and not had the love and the passion that I still do at the age of almost 27. Um, and that like, I still love playing the game and love training for it. I know that a lot of my teammates um, like had really burned out of that, even in high school, which I think is sad. So what is it about the pay-to-play, expensive, you know, competitive club soccer environment that you think is leading towards burnout? I think that there's just, like, a lot more pressure. Um, I think that, like, just the the current system in, in saying, like, okay, well, we're paying to play, but then, like, you have to get a scholarship. Essentially, that's kind of what it feels like. Um 
I, I think that that is like really stressful. <laughs> um, and I think like some people can, can thrive in that and, and really take it as a challenge, but other people just um, like players will kind of just like lose steam. Like it's, it's, it's all year round. I mean, at least when I was playing club, it wasn't, we had a break, like we had a little bit of a break um, and like club wasn't allowed to touch us during high school season in the fall. And so then like we played high school and like really enjoyed that. Like I think high school was a really important part of like my development and just continuing my passion and love for the game. Um, and then come November, then it was like indoor club and then we went outdoors and then we went in through like probably till July 1st, but then we had a good break, you know, like I had a month where it was like, okay, I can kind of detach a little bit. And usually I was playing with Puerto Rico, but it was just a different, kind of like a different environment, different coaching, different girls. Like it, it just gave me a little bit of distance and break. And I think that doesn't exist anymore. Um, and so that's something that I think is, is one of the leading, like one, like, I think that's why there's so many injuries now, cause there's really no break, but also just like, I think mentally, um, at a young age, you may love soccer, like live it, breathe it, eat it, all of this stuff, you know, but I think that it's, it's hard sometimes um, to not have that separation and just feel pressure consistently all of the time to perform, 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 or like you're going to sit and then you feel bad because your parents are paying so much money. Just, I think that's just like a whole load of things. Well, that, that definitely, you know, feeling that pressure and, and all that is, you know, you, you definitely, before you get to burnout, you lose the joy. And when you, Mm -hmm. when you lose the joy, that's when it becomes, um, you know, a tough pull, a tough, um, you know, every day having to like strap up the boots and get out and train and this, and that you, you lose that kind of joy, that love of the game. Um, and, and I, and I think obviously when you, when you look at it from an adult perspective, you know, it's a big business. And so there's, it's not mm-hmm. just parents, but there's coaches and DOCs and club executives and in soccer organizations. And it's become this massive uh, soccer economy and, um, you know, youth soccer that I think that it's more than just the, the kids putting pressure on themselves. I think there's a lot of ad- adults that are putting pressure mm-hmm. on these kids uh, rather than just allowing them um, you know, look, kids are going to know who wins and who loses. They're going to put enough pressure on themselves to perform. They're going to want to win or, or perform well when they're on the field. And, and I don't think any adults need to to add to that for these kids to to know that themselves. It, it's internal. They Most kids are going to feel that pressure anyway. Uh, I think one of the things that we get out of balance is we have put so much on the line. You do have people earning, you know, uh, you know, their entire income from running these kind of organizations. And so there are, there's pressure for them to find players, you know, create teams that win and win championships and win trophies and, and go far and, and get kids to college, et cetera, um, because their paycheck is on the line. And so these kids are feeling mm-hmm. that same pressure as well. And, and, um, you know, it, it, I think it definitely has contributed to that. We've seen some of the the participation numbers 
um, in youth sports and, and especially in youth soccer have gone down uh, over the last several years. Statistics have continued to come out even with U.S. soccer in the in the official registration numbers that have gone down. Um, and I and I think part of it is just we we've we've placed priorities or too too many priorities in areas maybe that we are a little out of balance from a from a health perspective um, in terms of just a healthy level of pressure or expectations of these kids. We have to remember that, you know, uh, you know, a young boy or young girl that are playing that are 10, 11, 12 years old, they're still figuring it out. And, um, Mm -hmm. you know, and and yet we, we expect for them to perform as if, you know, it's the World Cup. 2019 in France and and you've got to go and score that goal it's like hey you know uh you know super dad over there on the sideline just you know calm down a little bit um so so in in your you know coming up developing as a player um you know you you get the opportunity you 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 were encouraged um by Tony DeChico to to try out open tryouts for the uh, under 17 Puerto Rican national team. What was that experience yeah. like uh, going and in, in, in engaging in that environment for the first time? So I was super nervous <laughs> um, because I didn't know, again, like I didn't really know what to expect, like a national team. Like I'm imagining just the U S you know, that's, that's all I've ever known. Like U S national teams, like, Oh my gosh, this is going to be crazy. Um, and and I think that it was it it was the first time that um, I ever like really 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 wanted something like so much so that I was willing to do absolutely anything to get on this team. Um, and so like I went to the tryout and um, it was an open tryout and it was during I think it was like in during Christmas time. And we always go down to Puerto Rico for Christmas. Cause that's where the rest of like our extended family lives. Um, and so I was down there and, and I tried out and the coach said, um, you're good, but there's a lot of things you need to work on. So you can come back in the summer and train with us all summer. Um, and you might have a shot at getting on this roster. And, um, the level of girls that was there was good. Like there was a lot of players who, um, were from the islands that were very talented and just really raw talent because at that point the league in, in Puerto Rico for a women was like non-existent really um, like there wasn't a, a superior league there wasn't like the youth like girls had kind of just started playing a lot of these girls had started playing at the age of like 10 11 12 as opposed to you know in the U.S. usually it's like four um, and so like it was really raw talent but like it was gritty and it was tough and people worked super hard um and I wanted to be part of that so I went home and I worked harder than I had ever worked in my life um and then went back that summer trained with them twice a day every day for pretty much the whole summer and then was able to to land a starting spot on that roster which was awesome so you 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 get a spot on the roster and and it begins this um, um, journey with the Puerto Rican uh, national team and the program um, and you you mentioned you know you're you're you grew up in the U S and you're expecting you know this kind of experience that you just you know everybody has a picture in their mind of you know what this is going to be like when you get 
to wherever it is you're going, no matter where you're at in life, you know, whether it's a vacation, whether it's, you know, a playing opportunity, what, you know, whatever it is, you, everybody has this, this picture in their head. Okay. This is what we're going to go to. This is what I'm going to experience. You get there in, in your initial meeting. Uh, I, I read where you talked about how there were, you know, holes in the field, uh, syringes, mm-hmm. all so the, the, the playing environment there that you encountered was obviously, I'm assuming, different than what you expected uh, whenever you, you left to, to, to go down and, um, and, and try out. Um, what was that like comparing that, you know, growing up playing in Connecticut and then showing mm-hmm. up for a national team tryout national team camp with Puerto Rico and there's holes in the field and syringes and you know did you know what what thoughts were going through your head at that point so I I've been asked this question a lot and and as I've reflected kind of on it I think that it was so for me it was so exciting that I was being called into a national camp and I was like, I, I didn't know any different. Cause it's not like, I mean, I knew different in like the club setting and all these things that were our fields were incredible and we had amazing practice facilities. But in my head, I think I just was like, well, I'm on the national team and this, this must just be how it is. And kind of as I've, I've gotten older, I've noticed that that same thing happens with all of the younger players, like no matter what's going on, and now like we as older players who have had experiences abroad and in colleges and all of these things have really see like whether like yes this is how it's supposed to be or no like this isn't right the younger players are just so excited to be there and to have the opportunity to represent their country and I really feel like that's how I felt I was like yeah okay this field is absolutely terrible and like yeah okay guys watch out for that like syringe or use condom on the field but like for me, it was just like, why well, get the opportunity to play with the national team? And that's that was all that was on my mind. And at that point, it didn't seem like a big deal. My parents were like, this isn't right. But I think for them too, it was just like such an honor for me to be able to play and represent their country. And um, they were just like, well, maybe this is just how it is. Because of course, like they've never had an experience other than a national team experience other than that as well. Well, and, and, and that makes sense. Um, you, you get into the program, you train, you become a regular, a staple with the Puerto Rican women's national team. Um, when you first joined the team, what was the, what was the conversation like amongst the, the players, uh, in terms of ambition, aspiration, you know, what were you guys, uh, trying to, you know, to achieve as, as a goal for the team and for the program when, when you first, you know, joined the Puerto Rican uh, women's national team uh, program? So the when I was 15 and playing on that U-17 team, we were in um, the finals for the U-17 CONCACAF World Cup qualifying. And I think none of us knew what that actually meant, honestly. <laughs> I think we were just like, we want to like, win some games and that was kind of what we thought right like we're 15 16 17 year olds not really knowing like what does this mean and what is the magnitude and I think as we've gotten older and as we've um kind of developed and seen more and experienced more like for the U20s that was a different conversation like we were like we want to be 
the best in the Caribbean. And like, we want to compete for spots in these national, like in these tournaments and we want to like be able to make it. And I think like, as we went into, like when we finally made um, the finals for Olympic qualifying in 2016, like our goal was like, we want to compete with all of these teams. And our group was us, Mexico and Costa Rica. So we knew going into it, like, this is going to be really tough, but what we wanted was like, we want to learn. We want to gain this experience because like we're playing on a whole different stage than what we're used to. And the next time that we do this, we want to compete even better, but like the, you have to have a first time to compete and to understand like, what does it take to be one of these best teams? Um, And I think now, like, as we've kind of moved from that and as we're older um, and as we've kind of, seen the competition and been around for for like 11 12 years now like we really see like we can be the best in the Caribbean and we can make a world cup um and that I mean that's what we want I mean we we are working tirelessly and we've got Olympic qualifying this this um fall and I mean our goal for that is just hey we want to we want to pull out some wins in in well we want to qualify for the finals and then in those finals we want to pull out some wins and like take every game and learn from every game, but really like make our stamp and, and start to be known because then that gives us better friendly opportunities, et cetera. And then in four years, like we want to be at the world cup, like they're extending the amount of spots that CONCACAF is, is able to, to have. And we see that as like a huge opportunity for us um, to, to kind of embrace and, and to go for it. How would you compare the, Puerto Rican women's national team program to some of the other Caribbean islands and in, in countries in, in terms of quality, in, in terms of, uh, you know, player quality. And, and, and we'll get into some of the behind the scenes or off the field things in a minute. But, you know, w- w- when you look at your competition, obviously in this region uh, and, and even globally, the U.S. women's national team is the gold standard. Uh, but, but in terms of the rest of CONCACAF, you know, how do you feel like you, your team and your teammates shape up or compare, especially to some of the other Caribbean, uh, opponents that you'll face? Um, I think in the Caribbean, we've really made our mark. I mean, we've beaten every team in the Caribbean, um, (laughs) before. So like, we know that we can do it. Um, and we know that we, um, I think like if you were to look at our roster, for example, like player for player, I mean, we, we aren't known, you know, like most of us like went to college and, and the girls who went to like, some of us have played professionally and that type of thing, but we're not like, we're not a starter at, at Florida state who won a national championship like that we don't have very many of those players you know but we have players who I think like the difference between our team and and one of the ways that like we really um like stand out is just like our like undying work ethic um and our commitment to our country our program and to each other I think that like despite all of um all of the things that have or like in spite of pretty much like all the things that have kind of been stacked against us. Like we care about representing our country. Well, we care about being role models for the younger girls and we care about um, 
like showing well on the field and the way to do that is by playing together and like working like we do so much ourselves like individually to to really make it happen um and and we've we've gotten results and honestly that's entirely because each individual person on that team is willing to do whatever it takes to to individually be ready so that when we're together we know that like everyone is prepared and we all trust each other and we're we're ready to like grind it out if it's like a 90 minute game if we're going to overtime it doesn't matter like we're going to grind it out the the team itself the program the players it has not been um you know the roll out the red carpet obviously we talked about uh when you first showed up for for um open tryouts what the field conditions were like Last year, um, you guys uh, led a, a protest based on on treatment, and we're seeing some uh, you know similar type of issues in terms of financial support and, and et cetera. You know, throughout the women's game in the world, even in the Caribbean itself, um, what led up to that uh, that moment for for your team and your teammates, and and what were some of the conditions and things that you, that you all were having to deal with? Um, that that you finally just said, look, enough is enough. We need some changes. We need we need some uh, improvements and some and some better support and resources from our our federation. Um, so I think kind of like what I said when we when we all first started, we were just like bright eyed, bushy tailed, like oh my gosh, we're playing for our country. This is so amazing. Um, I think as there's never really been an older crowd. <laughs> on the Puerto Rican national team because it's not financially or physically like viable um, in the state that, that it, that it's in. And so um, we've kind of grown up in this program, but a lot of us have been able to, again, like go play professionally, play in really high level colleges, universities um, around the States. And we've seen what it means to be treated like a professional. Um, And we've seen what it takes, um, in training conditions and coaching in, um, in just like financial state, just care, like just like medical care and training care we've seen. Um, and we've been exposed to what that, what it takes to be at the highest level. And I think that now that we're older, like there's a core of us who are older, who have seen all these things, we kind of understood like we were coming back to the national team and being treated like worse than in college or at the professional level, which shouldn't be the case. Like if you're representing your country, that should be the pinnacle of your career kind of. Um, And so we kind of just saw it and, and no one had ever pointed it out to us before, because again, there had never been older players on this team. Um, And so we just kind of talked to each other and we're just like, this isn't right. Like we are never going to get better. And we are going to stay in the same rut that we have always been um, if we don't, if like we are not willing to do something about it. And kind of our mentality when, when we started talking about this was like, hey, guys, like we've got, let's say, like four or five, six years left to play. But it's not really about uh, like we can start to be the change that then allows like all of these younger girls to actually experience what it should be like and like really have success and obviously like we want success for like we want to be part of that success in on the field and all these things but 
um, I think our mentality and I think what kind of drove us was like, it's not good enough. And like, no one helped us and no one like pointed out these things 11 years ago. And like, we have to be the people who are going to do it. Um, and so just kind of, as we saw, like, as we continue to train on, on bad fields and get pushed to like the nine to 11 PM slot, because the boys had to train before us or a club team needed to train before us, even though we were training for competitions and, um, flying in like three days before a competition, um, people come in and then like training together only for like two days before a competition, um, after not playing with each other for months and months and not having any international friendly games ever. Um, we kind of just were like enough is enough. Like we know that we have the talent and we know we have the will, but we need support and we need, um, proper conditions in order to be able to, to do what we know that we can do. And so that's kind of, that's kind of what started it all. Um, and that's kind of when we took matters in our own hands. So you, you, you take matters into your own hands. Um, but, but leading into that first international friendly, were the, were the conditions ideal, the setup for that ideal, the behind the scenes still ideal, or, or did you still feel like, uh, we're kind of, we're, we're still kind of getting a shaft here. Oh, it was, it was terrible. Um, we, we, uh, a new coach got signed on pretty much like two weeks. I think it was right before our, our first international friendly game we had, um, I flew in, I think it was like five days before the game. Um, and we hadn't trained together since like, t- since like three or four months prior, um, when we had uh, world cup qualifying, um, girls were like, we didn't, I didn't know like some of the girls that had been called in at all, like, because they were just kind of, they didn't want to pay for plane tickets for girls to come. And it was such short notice that like a lot of colleges wouldn't release girls. And like other girls had, had work obligations that like, they were like, Hey, if you would have told me more than a week before, like I could have made this happen, but I can't go on such short notice. Um, all that type of stuff, um, was like the first part, but then we would, um, go to trainings and the field would be locked. So we'd be sitting outside because the club manager didn't want to open the field because they didn't want us to ruin it for the club team. And then, so we'd get pushed to a different field that was like waterlogged um, and the ball like would just spin because it wouldn't roll. And then we went to like a different facility and we trained for 30 minutes and then got kicked off because there was five-year-old soccer coming on and they had priority over us. And so kind of all of these things leading up, like really confirmed and affirmed what we were doing. And then just even down to nutrition, which is so basic and necessary for like an elite athlete. Um, we were eating Applebee's every day because it was like close and like easy and cheap. And so just like everything that, that was going on, um, was just, it wasn't good enough. And we were like, you, you want us to play, you want us to perform like professionals, but we're not being treated like professionals or even giving the basics of like an elite player. Um, and so that kind of affirmed and confirmed like that we needed to do something, um, to, to, to change it. So dealing with those conditions and, and obviously not ideal with the Federation, what is the what is what is Puerto Rico? What what is the country like in terms of support for the team? Do, do do they do they do you feel like it's well supported from from 
the public? Is it something that people don't know is really going on? Like, what what is the interest level with a Puerto Rican national team, uh, men's or women's? So I think it's 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 been pretty cool to see it grow. So when we were first there, like no one even knew we had like a national team because ever like basketball and volleyball um, and baseball are really the sports. Um, there and so like men's basketball and baseball and then like women's and men's volleyball is just super super good in Puerto Rico so that's kind of what's always gotten the focus um but as we've kind of had successes and I think um like with the help of the media really uh we we've actually gotten really awesome fan base and support base um on the island and then also Puerto Ricans who are now living in the states a ton of support from them um and so interest is growing and it's really cool now because we've actually got like little girls who want and little boys who like want to play soccer and are, are looking up to the national teams. Um, I think kind of in almost every country, it's similar, like the men's team, despite their, their lack of success still have more support than we do. Um, even though we have had more successes um, than they have, but I think that for both teams, it's the support is growing, and I think that kind of the culture and the climate on the island is right for for soccer to to continue gaining support. So when when you are um, playing in a match and and you suit up and you put on that uniform, um, what do you hope when you're when you're done playing when all of that that player side comes to an end what are you hoping your legacy is as a member of the Puerto Rican women's national team I really hope that like that I will have been someone who who started to change the face of of women's soccer on the island um I I think that it's not enough and I think it's not just Puerto Rico I think that like this has been happening all over the world and I Puerto Rico is just a really small part of it, but for us, it's a, it's a huge thing. And so I just want like conditions for those girls who are, who are coming up um, and those boys who are coming up um, and like wanting to play and watching their idols play on TV all the time. Like I want, I want it to be a soccer country and I want it to be a, a country. Like I know we have the talent and I know that like as a country, we have grit and we have like this warrior spirit and I really, really believe that um, that we can do really big things. And I just hope to to have some small effect in that. Um, and and I hope to continue helping, like even when I'm done playing, to continue kind of moving that and that forward and passing the torch to to other players who are who are up and coming. But just being able to start that, I think, is is the biggest thing. And to to be able to know that like. I played my part when I was on the field and then I'm going to try and continue to play, play a different role, obviously when I'm, when I'm done playing. What do you think is the, the most important um, aspect of women's soccer that needs to get addressed or fixed or improved going forward? You know, you have your experience. It's obviously uh, you've made, progress you you you're you're still fighting an uphill battle on certain things but you've made some progress when you look at some of the other stories throughout the caribbean throughout the 
the world on the women's game, what do you think is the, is the number one, two, maybe three factors or things that, that need to change or improve in order for the women's game to, you know, to be treated in a, in a proper way and to have the opportunity to, to really grow and reach its potential? So I think something that that this World Cup actually is is really helping in in that sense is that like I don't think I've ever seen so much coverage of of and like like hype <laughs> around like a women's tournament. And I think that that fact of having like having these role models and these incredible players and like sharing their stories and sharing their struggles and seeing their successes um i think that that is super important because like i think that if you don't see who you want to be like or like who you want to be like or whatever like you're you you may not get there and so i think for for young players it's so important to see just this like this fan base um and this support and and just these awesome role models and i think it's also important to see that like it's, it's not all glamorous um, because I think sometimes like it, it gets portrayed that way, but I think it's good to see like it's, it's hard, but it's hard like for all athletes, you know? Um, so I think just like, that's one of the things, just like continuing this incredible, just like hype and coverage and um, kind of just show, showing young players that, that like they're people that can be role models for them. Um, I think the second thing is just like, I think individual federations like need to step up and, and understand that in some countries, like your women's team is going to be better than your men's team and pour your funding into that. Like, I think that like around the world, it's, it's known like the men's side is known, but there are so many countries and you can see the difference of the countries that are pouring resources into their women's side versus the countries that are not. Um, and I mean, again, you can use the U S as an example, like they're still struggling and they're still not getting like the same resources and the same, same support, even though they've had more successes. So I think that this is just going to be an uphill battle in general is, and the U.S. is kind of leading that, leading that charge. Um, but just knowing and getting the funding from from federations, um, and then I I really just think like like it, it it starts from the top. So I think like FIFA has done some has taken some steps in in um, trying to improve what's going on. But I think that like they can do more, um, and they can hold not only federations accountable, but entire conferences like CONCACAF, like hold CONCACAF accountable. Um, because like account of, there's so many countries that, um, including ours, like that they were like taking money from our programs, but like no one was held accountable. So it just continues happening. Um, so there needs to be just like more accountability in that as well. I want to close with this, uh, last question. Um, and, and get your, your thoughts on this. Uh, if you were uh, in charge of CONCACAF for a day, um, what would you do with your day in charge? Oh, man. <laughs> um, man, that's a tough one. I think 
I think that it would be really important to kind of, I mean, and again, I think it takes more than a day. So I don't know. I don't know how much effect it would be in a day, but I think that um, it's really important to, again, like look at what is each individual federation doing and how are they supporting not only their women's team, but also their men's team. Because for example, like I know our men's team is, is better off than we are, but they've got a ton of the same struggles that we do. And like, what is, what is happening? Like structurally, what can be done um, to, to improve this? Yes. We're small countries like in, in the Caribbean, you know, like we're, we're not a USA that has so many like players and a huge pool, all these things, but there's little things that like at the end of the day, like that doesn't necessarily matter how big your country is. Um, there's little small structural differences that can, um, and strategies, like just making a strategy and a long-term plan. I think that's the other thing in the Caribbean, like there is no long-term plan for these countries. Like, it's just like, Oh, there's a competition. Okay. Let's suit up and get ready for that competition. There has to be some sort of like viable long-standing, um, step-by-step, like, here's what we want to do. And this little, this big step or this big goal, but here are all the little goals and stuff that need to be de- need to be done. And so kind of looking at the structural structural um, and st- strategic planning of, um, of all of these countries in CONCACAF and see like what is successful and what is not and how can we kind of take what's successful in other countries um, and kind of apply that to the countries that are smaller and may need some help. Well, I think you did pretty good with your answer there. Um, I know I put you on the spot. It, it is a, it's a thought exercise, and I love I love the answers I get when I when I ask these types of questions uh, of guests, um, and 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 I get uh, you know requests uh, for you know what are we going to talk about and different things. But this it's always one of those that I like to leave behind because it you you do get kind of a a processing as you're answering moment and you get some really cool insight and in and in ideas uh and solutions uh possible solutions that that could could really benefit um so i i appreciate you taking some time to to think that through and and all of your your answers and and you know background on uh, the the Puerto Rican national team your own career and growing up and playing um you know I think uh, I have definitely enjoyed having you on to to have that conversation. If people wanted to connect with you online, um, social media, whatever, how how could they get in touch with you, learn more, uh, hear more of your story, connect with you uh, online? Um, So my Twitter is at N underscore Rodriguez 18. um, And I love getting messages and connecting with people on there. Um, and I've also got an Instagram, but it's not, I don't really do that too. I, I'm more on Twitter, but Instagram is at Nicole underscore Rodriguez 25. So, uh, 18 and 25, uh, any, any particular, uh, reasons for those numbers or they're just lucky numbers you like, uh, w- what's the story uh, on those? 18, 18 is my national team number. So that's the number I wear to represent, um, represent Puerto Rico and, 25 was my number um, in college at Notre Dame. So just kind of always representing the Irish a little bit, you know. <laughs> I, I hear you. I hear you. Well, I, I knew there had to be a story uh, with the with the numbers and, and now you've now you've explained them. So uh, c- kudos to you for for giving us more <laughs> behind the scenes uh, of, of uh, you know, y- 
the the numbers and why they mean so much to you. So, look, Nicole, thank you for coming on the show and um, for telling your story and 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 also um, sharing uh, some of the the things that are going on. I think a lot of people just don't know about. And uh, the more we tell those mm-hmm. stories, the more we share those stories. Um, I think is the sooner we get to see improvement. Um, not just in the Caribbean, but uh, throughout CONCACAF, throughout the world uh, of soccer, whether it's the women's, the men's, youth, whatever the case, I think when we shed a, uh, you know, share the spotlight and, and, and shine a light on those areas, we can see some progress. So thanks for coming on today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. That was Nicole Rodriguez. She is the longest standing player for the Puerto Rican women's national team and uh, loved having her her on and sharing her insights. Uh, The sponsor for for this half hour is Charity Water. You can learn more about Charity Water by going to charitywater.org. And uh, they are changing lives, changing villages, changing people's uh, opportunities going forward. Um, And and it would be... uh, You'd be remiss if you didn't take a, take some chance, uh, take some time to go and visit CharityWater.org and support that, that effort. So uh, thanks for tuning in to the show. We'll be right back after this. No one, no man, no woman, no child should ever have to drink green water with bugs, with algae, with disease in it. bad water and a lack of toilets kills more people than all the wars in the world. We know how to bring clean drinking water right now to every single person on earth. And when you can bring water into communities, it truly transforms them. It changes everything. You could know that you'd made a difference. You could know that you had truly impacted the life of a family, of a community, of a region. There was either clean water or there wasn't. We believe in a world where every single person has clean and safe water to drink, and we will continue fighting until that happens. Welcome back into the show, and I, I really thank Nicole for coming on. And now joining us is Mickey Turner. Uh, Mickey, how are you this morning? Daniel, how's uh, your Friday going? It's going well, man. Um, look, anytime we get some some news, good or bad, that that gives us you know some direction on where where we're at in this American funky soccer space that we have uh is good but in the fact that we get what i what i think is really good news um is is even even better and that news came out yesterday which is why we wanted you to 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 stop by the show uh before we head out for the weekend to talk about this news uh what what did you learn in kind of reading through some of the notes uh, from FIFA's uh, dispute resolution chamber on this Crossfire Premier Solidarity Payments case. Yeah, yeah. Just a brief uh, background uh, for people who may not uh, have been following. This is a case that uh, was filed back in 2015 
after DeAndre Yedlin was transferred from the Sounders and MLS uh, over to Tottenham. Crossfire, the youth academy that uh, trained Yedlin for a portion of his youth career, filed a uh, request to uh, receive solidarity payments from Tottenham. Um, we have not ever found out the exact exact amount from but from what I've been told, it's around $100,000 or so. Um, <clears throat> once uh, they sent that uh, request to Tottenham, Tottenham initially was uh, receptive to paying it, but after having discussed the matter with MLS and U.S. Soccer, uh, decided that because uh, they believe solidarity payments were not allowed in the United States, uh, ultimately did not send that payment to Crossfire and just sent the entire fee uh, over to MLS. And uh, Crossfire then uh, filed a complaint with uh, the Dispute Resolution Chamber, and we thought they lost. Uh, uh, you know, the ruling came out uh, last month, um, and everyone thought that Crossfire had lost their complaint because the claim was rejected. As it turns out, yesterday we found out why the claim was rejected, and it wasn't because Crossfire lost. They actually had a legitimate claim against uh, Tottenham, but that uh, for reasons uh, – that Tottenham was able to convince the dispute resolution chamber of were not liable to pay those fees. So uh, Crossfire ended up losing this particular battle, but may end up winning the war down the line. And I think that's a really good way to put this. Uh, there was a lot of speculation on this case surrounding uh, a couple key points, maybe three. The, the first is, there were a lot of excuses given by the Federation, and and I, I heard these when I was running Winalda's campaign for president of U.S. soccer because it this was this was an area that we camped out in, which is FIFA compliance. Sunil Gulati at the time, the current president of U.S. soccer, got up in a youth uh, U.S. youth soccer forum and uttered all kinds of legal nonsense and excuses as to why issues like solidarity payments couldn't be used. It was the kind of their go-to excuse that most in U.S. soccer just were like, okay, well, you know, Sunil spoke, so I guess we just can't do anything. And um, and, and we kept saying that's just not the case, uh, that, that there is no, there, you know, the child labor laws and all these other legal excuses that, that has nothing to do with with this system and there is no u.s law preventing this this is just an excuse this is U u.s soccer and mls uh working hand in hand to, to keep uh funding away from the rest of these clubs so that was one thing um you know that that was part of this whole thing the second thing that was often used in in this um aspect specifically with crossfire but but others is the pay-to-play system. So there were a lot that argued that, you know, well, because Crossfire is a pay-to-play youth club, they can't file for this. And, and there was never anything in the statute uh, from FIFA that, that banned payments to pay-to-play clubs. It, it's just, it's not even addressed. So there, yeah. was, a, there was a lot of spe speculation on that. And, and the third aspect of this uh, was was the record keeping of, of U.S. soccer, which is, you know, probably of, of all of the things, including what the, the DRC found on the, the Crossfire case specifically in terms of U.S. soccer working with MLS to keep the money away from Crossfire and, and telling Tottenham to just pay the money to, to MLS. Um, 
beyond that, I think that the area where where U.S. soccer opens themselves up to to potential real danger is not fulfilling their obligations as a federation domestically, but also a federation under FIFA in their record keeping. Uh, which which Tottenham disputed, used as a dispute in, in trying to avoid uh, being punished, which was the player passport issue of of the record keeping. And there's you know all of these disputes back and forth on on that part too. And in all of those cases, uh, FIFA came down on the side of Crossfire Premier. Uh, so they the they did not say that the business model. Uh, prevents it from receiving solidarity payments. Um, and they also said that the player passport, even though the, the records may have not have been perfect, there were enough records to prove that they should get something. Um, so I think I think you're right. Uh, this was a case of maybe losing a battle. I don't know that they, that they even lose the battle in the long run. I think they've got a, a, a clear opportunity now to get that money from MLS. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so lots of stuff there, and uh, I have a story coming out um, in the Athletic, uh, you know, shortly, uh, probably within the uh, hour. Um, I've talked with uh, Lance and done some analysis of the uh, of the ruling from the DRC, and you're you're pretty much uh, spot on on all points. Uh, you know, the DRC did not find uh, that the pay for uh, pay to play model that uh, Crossfire and other youth academy uh, you know programs in the United States use. Uh, was a problem at all. So that opens up all uh, the possibility of uh, youth academies uh, pursuing these payments uh, for players who move on and uh, join uh, leagues overseas. Uh, they also found that the record keeping, at least as far as Yedlin was concerned, uh, was not a problem. That does not speak to the issues with uh, Michael Bradley and Clint Dempsey, where there were no player passports, uh, essentially, because U.S. soccer's record keeping was was uh, so incomplete that's essentially been resolved at this point uh, they now do have a player passport system um, in place but that doesn't really uh, address uh, players who uh, like I said Clint Dempsey and Michael Bradley uh, just simply did not have those records because U.S. soccer wasn't keeping in them at the time and, and after talking with Lance uh, you can bet that they will be pursuing that claim against uh, MLS um, and or U.S. soccer uh, for the Yedlin, uh, the Yedlin deal specifically, so that they will be going after that money. Uh, Lance uh, told me that directly, and it's just a matter of how they go about pursuing those, uh, pursuing that money. Uh, it's likely that uh, they will talk with uh, U.S. Soccer first and try to prevent, uh, you know, try to not have another lawsuit uh, that the federation would be embroiled in. Even though, again, we're not talking about huge money here uh in the yedling case you know again it's you know, by all accounts it's around a hundred thousand dollars um and that's you know not a huge amount of money but that's certainly something that they will be going um after uh u.s soccer and mls for uh and you know they'll try to do it nicely at first and if that doesn't uh, succeed then uh, they'll uh, they'll accelerate their efforts uh to recoup that money but they, they are certainly going after that at some point well, I, I think I think the hundred thousand dollars it could be one dollar, but it's precedent, and uh, and so you know my hats off to the to to Crossfire and to Lance and all of those people involved in pursuing justice. If that justice is ten thousand dollars, a million dollars, a hundred thousand dollars, 
I don't think the monetary amount at this point is the is the issue. I think I think if you look at um, you know some of the comments from Lance publicly um, in in this news, I mean, you know, he he even talked about how it's a great day for American youth soccer. Uh, to me, this is this is a matter of principle and precedent more so than even the money and the, and in following that through to the end is is about making sure the precedent is in place and official and there is no more wiggle room for U.S. soccer and MLS to collude uh, with one another to prevent uh, an organization like Crossfire from getting, you know, compensation that that they should be receiving uh, based under FIFA's rules. So, yeah, I think it. it, Yeah, uh, it's probably good to at least at this point uh, separate U.S. soccer from MLS. Uh, because obviously MLS at this point has said that they are going to both pay and uh, pursue solidarity games with training compensation. We may question the motives for why they decided to do an about face, but uh, you know, at this point they are uh, going to fully participate in the system. The issue is really U.S. soccer at this point, uh, from my point of view, because they have at no point indicated that they are interested in being a part of the system. Uh, I, you know, they, Talking to them, it is mostly about they, them not wanting to be sued by the MLS Players Association. Um, you know whether that is a, le- a legitimate uh, cause for concern is another issue. I did speak with uh, the Players Association. We can expect a statement from them on this uh, soon, uh, probably later today. As you can imagine, they are not pleased with this news, um, and they have steadfastly opposed. Uh, the training compensation solidarity payments based on the fact they think it restricts player movement. So uh, that's going to be interesting to hear from them. Uh, hopefully, uh, I don't think the statement will be available in time for my story, but we'll certainly have update it once it comes out. And so uh, it's, it's uh, you know, M- U.S. soccer has had this position for quite some time, and it doesn't appear that's going to change. They're not going to comp- – they, they didn't uh, – they declined to comment for my story, I should say. Um, but we'll see what they have to say going down the line, especially once uh, Lance uh, you know, sends them a, a nice letter asking to resolve these issues. So when you look at where we are in this, you know, I think I think there's a couple things that are clear from from my standpoint, not to put words in your mouth but you can you can agree or disagree with this but two things one is i think that mls's preemptive action and i said this at the top of the show preemptive action to say we're now going to honor solidarity payments is because they got wind that this was coming and that was a pr move to basically try to get out ahead of this going forward and 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 not have stink all over their face with this ruling come out coming out that that's number one if you look at the way mls and u.s soccer operate hand in hand um in in the decisions that are made they typically don't do uh things unless they feel pressure or forced to do them so a change to be fifa compliant in that area is because they were feeling you know some pressure Obviously, they were seeing players start to go to Europe, and, and, and that got the owners going, we got, we got to change this. But I also think uh, it's, it's not coincidence that, you know, just weeks before this, um, you know, finding the, the actual details of the, of the DRC ruling come out that 
MLS announces, hey, we're going we're gonna to honor this. So that's one. The second thing is um, U.S. soccer. Uh, across the board, what I keep running into in conversation after conversation is a lack of leadership. And, and that's what I see here. This whole idea of neutrality and this, that, and the other is, is simply just not leading, not doing their what they're chartered to do, which is be the national governing body of soccer for everyone in this country and honor every FIFA rule unless a U.S. law intervenes. And it's quite clear, um, unless, Mickey, you can uh, inform me and the audience that Congress uh, didn't pass a law in the last 90 days or so that, that changed some things that uh, being able to honor solidarity payments proves there was no law, there was no precedent that pre- prevented that. So when you look at the, the these two aspects, MLS trying to get out ahead of this with PR and, and U.S. soccer just not doing their job as a federation member of FIFA – where do you see this going forward uh, in terms of FIFA compliance in all areas? Do you think that, that this could lead to us seeing more things fall the right way for those of us who want to see U.S. soccer fully FIFA compliant? Oh, gosh, that's a big, that's a big, uh, big question. Um, so as far as the, uh, I guess, where we see the this specific issue going on, solidarity payments and training compensation, uh what it's it's difficult to say because you know there's as you say there's no specific law that says uh you know uh you know solidarity payments and training compensation are illegal per se what what you know u.s soccer and the mls players association are basically trying to say is that there is some underlying uh legal theory that could be interpreted to not allow those things so that's gonna that would require a lawsuit to to occur, um, you know, either from the MLS Players Association or from a player specifically saying, because this system is in place, I was prevented from moving. And, you know, that requires a plaintiff to, to prove that um, a player. So not, that obviously hasn't happened yet. And it's difficult to prove it's somewhat speculative. So it's, uh, you know, that that's going to be a difficult issue. Uh, you know, regarding the overall issue of, 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 of compliance with FIFA statutes, uh, it's, it's, you know, and you're kind of getting into, uh, I assume kind of the pro rel thing. Um, it's on that, on that score, again, there's no specific statute that prevents, uh, you know, promotion and relegation from being implemented. Um, the, again, the issue is that, uh, you know, that's going to result likely in a lawsuit on antitrust grounds. And so, you know, again, that's going to, you know, it's unlikely that uh, U.S. soccer is ever going to force that to happen. So, you know, what, what's the, uh, you know, what's the remedy there to, to try to get them to do that is probably to uh, file a grievance with the USOC or hope that the court of arbitration, uh, arbitration for sport where Dennis Crowley uh, and uh, Ricardo Silva are before requires them to do so. So those are, those are the, the best options if you're wanting to see those systems implemented uh, but it's not likely that U.S. soccer is going to do it on their own because, again, they are uh, lawsuit adverse at this point, and it's just not—it's not something they're going to want to do. So then, then you're going to have to pursue some other avenue to get compliance on those issues, which would involve, like I said, the cost ruling or filing a grievance with uh, the USOC 
uh, and trying to get uh, some some uh, redress there. Well, look, we we will continue to follow this in, in incredible. Um, I don't know, ma- mess of dysfunction that is U.S. soccer and all of the different uh, <laughs> issues that, that keep uh, arising. But, Mickey, thanks for dro- dropping by the show uh, and, and filling us in on, on what you've learned and, and what, you, what you foresee coming uh, down the road. Uh, for those of us who want full FIFA compliance, uh, yesterday was a good day and, and, and another step in the right direction. Um, I agree with you. It's, it's going to be a long haul and a long road, uh, but um, I feel like justice is on our side and it's just a matter of time, however, however long that is. So keep the fight, keep the faith, everyone. Uh, we can get there. So Mickey, thanks for dropping by and I uh, hope you have a great weekend. Thanks, Daniel. Talk to you later. All right, my guy. That was Mickey Turner dropping by the show um, and uh, spending a few minutes with us as we Head to the weekend um, and enjoy some more Women's World Cup. We'll talk about the uh, FIFA uh, DRC Dispute Resolution Chamber uh, speaking on on Crossfire's uh, Solidarity Payments case. If you, if you don't uh, know about that case, we'll get more into that next week. Uh, fascinating stuff. But uh, I, I would like to just say publicly a thank you to Crossfire for continuing to pursue this all the way through. Um, you're doing good work up there in Washington. So thank you. Have a great weekend, everybody. Hope you uh, tune in again on Monday. As always, weekdays live at 9 a.m. Eastern Standard Time on DanielWorkman.com. See everyone Monday.